right. Hope you had a great fourth. You have all your fingers. Nothing's burned or anything like that. None of the extremities are, uh, have been attacked by flaming fire torches coming at you. Uh, and all is well in your family. Um, you know, sometimes in life we are faced with things that we don't want to face. We call them elephants. Sometimes there's elephants in the room. You maybe have sat down at, at, at a dinner table over a holiday and there's been division in the, in, in the family and there's tension in the family and we call it the elephant at the table. Nobody wants to talk about the issue. They, so they talk about the weather and they talk about everything else and they ignore the elephant in the room. Sometimes there's an elephant at work and the elephant at work is that that issue, again, that's out there that maybe you know about and another person knows about, but nobody else knows about. And if it only became public, then it would just blow everything up. And it's that elephant that's in the room. Sometimes you have a close friend who's making some decisions that are very harmful decisions. Harmful relationship, harmful to his marriage or her marriage, or harmful, harmful, and you look at that and you know what's going on and you see the train wreck about to happen but you don't know what to do. You don't know whether to jump in front of the train and say, no, man, you are headed for a calamity and bringing everybody with you on the train. And everybody around you, when the train hits, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. And you want to jump in front of it, but you don't want to jump in front of it because you, you love the person. What do you do? Well, how do you face those elephants? I feel like for the past 12 months in my life, I have dealt with elephant after elephant. Elephant personally, elephants professionally, elephants in, inside the church, elephants outside the church that I've had to really do some tremendous soul searching on. And this message today, though it's the July 4th weekend and a lot of people are traveling, all that kind of stuff, probably isn't the best weekend to give it, but I could not wait any longer. It's like that. Like I, this has been so much working in me and trying to figure out how in the world... Can I get out what God has been putting into me? Again, over a 12-month period. Because as I get into this message, some of you are going to say, ah, I know that elephant. Or I know an elephant over there. I know what elephant he's talking about. You know what? There have been so many elephants, I can't count them all right now. So you might know of one, but I know of three others or four others. The point is, is not to try to figure out what white elephants is Mike talking about that have been inside the church. Or what white elephants have, or not white elephants, that's the gift you give, right? Uh, not the elephants that have, uh, if so I say that throughout the message, just ignore me, okay? Uh, you probably ignored me anyway. But anyway, I mean, ignore that, that white part anyway. The elephant, the, what, I mean, the elephants in my own personal life. What about those? How, what, which one are those? Don't even try to go there. Uh, because there are so many of them, and, and, and I just, I guess, have dealt with them to the point, and in prayer, there's probably not been one single message that I have prepared, wrote and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten than this message that I share with you today. It is deep, deep on my heart. And some of you all may have elephants in your life and in your family and on your job and in partnerships and in relationships. How do you deal with them? Do you deal with them? And if you haven't, you will. If you are in relationship with anybody, you will have elephants that you don't want to deal with because you know that, that, that it's going to be ugly. But you also know you need to deal with them. And how do you deal with them? So I kind of consider this maybe my manifesto on how to deal with 
the elephants of sin and sin as, as, as it creeps up into our lives. And as a church, we will have elements, we will have times when, when we will do things, especially when you declare literally from the very beginning that you are a church for the unchurched. A church for the unchurched is a church that's going to have people that will come and they'll come with issues and baggage and life stories that, that they're trying to deal with and we want to walk with them through that. But also, whenever you're a church where there are established believers, and I use that word established, believers, there will also be other issues that will come along. And when I think about how, and sometimes these two issues will collide with one another. How do you deal with these issues? How do you, how do you learn from them? How do you move past them to where they don't just cause this tremendous eruption and everything falls apart? I think maybe the best example is in Jesus' life, in John chapter 8. So be finding it in your Bibles, John chapter 8. When Jesus had to deal with these two situations of highly religious people, highly committed people, highly, again, faith-oriented people, at the same time, somebody who is living a life clearly far, far, far away from God. And how do you deal with those issues that are right presented in front of you. And Jesus deals with this issue. It's a woman caught in adultery. You may remember the story. The Pharisees and scribes bring this woman caught in adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and they're doing this not because they really had good motives. They're doing this, as the Bible says, to test him. And now the test is this, is that if Jesus all of a sudden just stands up and says, yes, this woman caught in adultery, take stones and stone her. They're in the middle of the temple court. A riot will ensue. This is not the place. But yet the, these, these scribes and Pharisees are, are really trying to tempt Jesus to get him to, to kind of commit to just kind of stoning her. Or if he doesn't acknowledge and deal with the elephant in the room, and he just ignores the elephant in the room, then really what he is, he's ignoring scriptural precepts. And when he ignores scriptural precepts, then he's actually negating himself as being connected with God. Okay? So he's got, he's, got some, he's got kind of a test that's laid out there before him. And how do you deal with this issue? And I think how do you deal with undealt with issues or non-dealt with issues in our life, issues that we have not dealt with in our lives, I think is the question. How do you deal with the relationship or the potential harm here or whatever that may come along our way? Or how do you deal with the, the sin that's present? In the camp, and I think there's two there's two rules in this passage of scripture that will help us. These two rules will help us remove the elephants of sin out of out of the situation. And and you're familiar with this passage of scripture. Let's read just the, how it begins in in John chapter eight verse one and uh, one and following. He says, "But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down." And he began to teach them. Now, he did not maybe know, I don't know if he knew, but on that day there would be many lessons taught. And he is sitting down with these people is a very common posture for the scribes to sit down. We stand up to teach. We go to school and the teachers stand up to teach. But no, in the Bible they sit down to teach. So he's sitting down and he's teaching them. He's he's in conversation with them uh, about whatever topic. We don't know what that topic is. And then all of a sudden, the scene changes. 
when the Pharisees and the scribes, they bring this person onto the scene and they began to be ready to stone her. And I want to give us the number one rule in understanding how to deal with sin in the lives of our family members and friends. The number one rule is only perfect people can condemn people. All right? Let's get that out in the open first. Only perfect people can condemn people. And that pretty much rules out everybody that I know. All right? Myself included. I can't condemn you and you can't condemn me. All right? And Jesus is going to make that clear. Many of us know the story. But what happens is sometimes whenever we look into somebody else's life, we can look into their life and say, you know what? That's not right and it's wrong and I'm going to condemn. They don't say that. But in essence, we condemn them. We reject them. And that is not the posture at all. The posture of Jesus is to reclaim them. And I want us to understand the difference between rejecting and reclaiming. Someone who is reclaimed is someone who has gone astray, but we're trying to bring them back, all right? And the posture that the Pharisees and the scribes have on this day and on this moment is that they're ready to stone them. They're ready to kill this person, condemn this person, judge this person, and put this person to death. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, ignore them and turn your back from them and hope that they don't do it anymore. Is that what that verse just said? Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. Restore, reclaim them, bring them back. We will all have times of sin in our life. How we deal with it whenever we see somebody out here on the peripheral. We can either reclaim them or we can reject them. How are we going to deal with it? And the problem is is that I'll tell you this, when you're in this scenario, and I've played it out enough in my life in the past year, when you're in this scenario, it's never going to be easy. All right? It's never going to be easy. Because no matter how good your motives are, no matter how scripted your script is, your words are, no matter how prayed up you are, there will be times and times of confrontation come that the other person, no matter how right you are in reclaiming that person and confronting that person, because there's confrontation, they won't like it. I like what Proverbs says. Proverbs says in 25.15, it says, Soft speech can break bones. Soft speech can break bones. The idea there is that, that there, even though I may gently, lovingly, caringly try to restore someone, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. All right? This is what Jesus models for us. This is what Paul models for us. This is the biblical way. Not rejecting people, but reclaiming them, bringing them back, back into the fold. And that needs to be our focus. Now, if you look back at this passage again, this is not what the approach of the Pharisees and the scribes were. Pick it up in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought, women, brought, uh, excuse me, brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now notice this next phrase. In the very act. All right? If that's not script enough, descript enough, that's that's about as descript as you can get. I mean, they were dancing. Let me put it like that, adults. They were in the process of dancing 
And they're pulling this woman out into the open in the very act. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, so that he might have grounds of accusing him. But Jesus stooped down. And with his finger, he wrote on the ground. And they persisted asking him. And he straightened up and said, He is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down. And he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out, one by one, beginning with the older one. As you think about this passage, and you think about people and how we as established believers, very carefully, guys, if you've been a Christian for any long, for longer than two or three years, I would, and you've been growing in your faith, be careful. You can become an established Christian very quickly. And be careful right next to that is you might become a judgmental Christian. And that's a dangerous position to be in. Because when you become judgmental, then no longer are you about reclaiming people. You're about calling people and rejecting people and putting them to task rather than lovingly reclaiming them to the faith. Judgmental people, just a couple of notes on them. Judgmental people judge people discriminately. All right? They judge people discriminately. When there's people caught in the very act. Now listen, think about this. When you're caught in the very act of adultery, that means it takes two to tango, right? Two to tango. Who did they bring before Jesus? They brought one. They were only going to judge the woman. They weren't worried about the man. The man was going to get off scot-free. We're going to take the woman. What happens is when we become judgmental, we lose objectivity. And we begin to judge people discriminately. We begin to look at one person and look at their sin and, and judge it, but we don't judge this one over here. We need to maintain objectivity. We'll, we'll judge this person who's not our friend and we have an axe against. We'd like to grind on them. But over here, we'll just kind of excuse that off. How much are we allowing the objective truth of God to penetrate our discernment? We have our little pet sins. We have our little pet judgments. Here's another truth about judgmental people. Judgmental people judge people before they judge themselves. We'll judge other people before we take the time to do serious introspection into our own life. The Armenians in the 10th century were believing that Jesus was actually bending down and into the ground was writing out the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we have no proof of that. We don't know that. That's what the Armenians began to teach and it's been taught kind of ever since. But we have no scriptural basis for that. We just know that they were staying there even as he was writing in the sand until he stood up and said, let the person who doesn't have sin be the one who throws the first stone. Then he stoops down and he writes again. So whatever he, if he's doodling or if he's writing out the sins of the different scribes and Pharisees, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, that statement right there was enough to peel off the layers of judgmentalism. Because everyone in that circle, all the scribes and the Pharisees, that highly religious group, they immediately had to look at themselves before they could go on to looking at the woman caught in adultery. Matthew 7, 5 is a commonly quoted verse. 
you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. I mean, Jesus has great creativity when he teaches. Take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Can you imagine this? Okay. If you'll get that log out of your eye, then you can see to get the speck and to help and to reclaim and to redeem the problem in somebody else's eye. But the problem is we can't see the speck and we end up hitting people every time we turn to judge them. We need to take time to look at ourselves. Now, in, in no way do we just simply ignore sin. No way, again, what did I say earlier? He says, you see a brother who's fallen into sin. Don't just ignore them and say, oh, I just can't judge them. We've got to start with ourselves and say, okay, am I clean? Am I right? Am I ready to go at this? Are my motives pure? Am I ready to go in and deal with this elephant in the room? And until I make sure I'm right, I am in no condition to go in and step into their life and to help them get the speck out of their eye. But we can't ignore it. We can't ignore it. We can't ignore the duplicity of so many Christians. The greatest source of atheism, Brennan Manning said, the greatest source of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny Him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. It's hard to follow somebody whenever there is inconsistency in their life. So what do we need to do? We have got to learn. We have got to figure out how can we step into somebody else's life and reclaim them without rejecting them. When we can comfort them and correct them without condemning them. How do you do that? Because, again, there's nobody perfect in this room, so none of us need to pick up stones and start throwing them. And only perfect people can condemn people. Number two, a second rule, if you're going to deal with the elephant in the room, is imperfect people cannot continue their path of destruction. Just because we are told to get the speck out of our eye, get the log out of our own eye, before we go and try to get the speck out of somebody else's eyes, it doesn't mean that we can't go help people. It doesn't mean that we just let the elephants live in the room and at the table and in the family and on the job and in the church. It doesn't mean that. It just means that we first must take care of ourselves before we even go to the next person. Because we can't let this continue to go on. And if you look at this passage, Jesus preached three messages on this one day. When was the first one? He's sitting down with the he's sitting down with the people. He's sitting down with them. He's talking. He's teaching. He's working through things. The second message was to the Pharisees. He said, "Let the one who's without sin cast the first stone." Nobody could do that because they were without sin, so they departed. That was the second message. The third message, though, there was a third message on that day. It was to the woman. Caught in adultery. could have been to the man. It should have been to both the man and the woman. But he looked at them and he said, Don't do this anymore. I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. 
And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. It is not right for us to come into somebody's life before we have thoroughly, thoroughly examined our own life and correct them. But when we have a brother, when we have a sister, when we have a fellow human being who is on a path of destruction, we can't let it keep going on. And Jesus had two messages on that day, one to the scribes and the Pharisees for being judgmental, but He also had one to the woman caught. And He said, don't do it anymore. He said, repent. He said, put it out of your life. And there's one thing, it's my favorite verse in the Bible, it's John chapter 1, verse 14. And I love the first part of the verse, but the last part of the verse really kind of tells me how I need to live my life. The first, first part tells me how I need to live my life, and the second part needs, needs to see what comes out of my life. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, this is speaking of Jesus, and He was full of grace and truth. See, if we, if we, just, if we just be the, person, the people of truth, if we're all truth and we're no grace, then we end up in judgmentalism. All truth and no grace is not a healthy thing. If we're all about showing the right way and pointing the right way and pointing out the wrongs of somebody else that's doing the wrong thing because we're right and we're going to show you what's right, then that just leads to judgmentalism. But neither is it good to just simply be all about grace. Because if you're all about grace and there's no truth, then all that leads to is licentiousness. Basically, no guardrails. We're just going to love, we're just going to accept, we're just going to go on. So we need to be people like Jesus lived, full of, what, two things, truth and full of grace. Now in this world in which we live, there's a lot about tolerance today. And I want to define what tolerance is versus another word that I prefer. Tolerance says this. Tolerance says, I love you and I will look past what you do. I love you and I will look past what you do. Tolerance is not good, it's not healthy. You know what? Let's say this. Lori and I have been married now for 18 years. But if I'm in a tolerant relationship with her, then I really need to allow her to have the freedom to explore other relationships because that's just tolerance. All right? And my children, they have a bad attitude. They smart off to us or they're rebellious against what we say as our rules of our family. I just need to be tolerant and understanding of that. They're just expressing themselves and just let it go right on. That's what tolerance teaches. All right? I don't think tolerance is a healthy way to go. If my kid's playing in the street and I've told them not to play in the street, to say, oh, they need their free creative expression to play wherever they want to play, that's not healthy. All right? And I'm afraid there are a lot of people who are playing in the streets, even as adults. I want, to, I want to give you another word, though. It's the word I prefer. Not tolerance, but acceptance. Acceptance says this. Acceptance says, I love you too much to simply look past what you do. I love you just as you are. But I also love you too much to let you stay there. And that's one thing about Jesus. You notice Jesus in His life and the way He calls and deals with people. He loves people, but He loves them... Too much to let them stay the way they are. He is constantly about changing lives. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Now we look inside 
What we, now we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone and a new life burgeons. The unacceptable response to sin is this. Is if I have a brother, if I have a sister, if I have a, a family member, if I have a, if I have a dear friend, and I see what they're on is on a train wreck of looking for a place to happen. And I just let them go on because I need to tolerate that. Because I need to tolerate their sin. Am I really, am I really loving them? Or is that actually a disguised love? See, I think a real love would accept them as they are, but love them to the point that there would be change in their life. And I would want to stand in their way and say, listen, playing in the street is harmful for your life. Let's get out of this street. Let's get off this train wreck. When you deal with people sometimes, they don't like that. And what I believe is unacceptable response to sin is whenever it is blatant. When that is that unashamed, barefaced, cocky, arrogant kind of thing that what I'm doing... I'm doing, and I've chosen to do it, and so what? But there's also blatant, and whenever sin is, is open. It's out on the table. Everybody can see it. I don't care. I'm unashamed of it. I mean, I, there's no shame in me. Here it is. And then lastly, when it's unrepentant, that is not a healthy thing. When it is blatant, when it is open, when it is unrepentant, That is never, never a healthy situation. And in my 12 months of dealing with people, I have had the sad privilege, sad responsibility, I would say, of dealing with some people who live just like that. And that becomes difficult. And if you deal with a family member or a friend or associate who's robbing the business, who's secondarily undercutting his relationship with his spouse, who's whatever the situation is, and they're living in blatant, open, unrepentant of situation. It is not healthy. They are a train wreck about to happen. Are we judging? No. Are we condemning? No. Are we reclaiming? Absolutely. Are we trying to redirect? Absolutely. Are we stepping in front of them before it collides? Yes. Because we love them too much to leave them where they are. Paul the Apostle did the same thing on a sexual immorality situation in the Corinth church. The Corinthian church, excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He says, and actually it's being said that there is sexual sin among you. And you are proud. What a statement. You're blatant, you're open, and you're unrepentant. Is basically what he's saying. There's immorality in the church, and you're proud of it. You're not dealing with it. You're not addressing it. There it is. It's out in the open. Paul said, you should be filled with sadness so that the man who did this should be put out of the group. That's church discipline. You don't see that very often in churches today because churches have turned church membership into a commodity. We can't lose people. They're a commodity. It's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. But let me show you an acceptable way to deal with sin. And that's the humble way. 
when you're humble about the sin is you realize that that is more, it's involving your perspective. That I'm realizing as I'm sitting here, I've been lovingly confronted and I'm being reclaimed about my sin. And I'm realizing that what I'm doing is wrong. The perspective is in place now. And now I can see this isn't right. This isn't right. This has got to be made right. I'm off course. Is whenever David was caught in adultery after a year of trying to hide it. After a year of trying to hide it, he was caught in adultery. And he realized after the brokenness of all that, he realized it was he was penning Psalm 51, verse 17, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. He realized the value of humility when he looked at his sin. The second appropriate response to sin is a regretful response. That regretful response deals with our emotions, where it literally tears me apart on the inside. A question I would have for everyone in this room is, can you literally go against God's timeless, objective, proven truth? Now think about this for me. Please, please, listen to this. Can you go against God's timeless, objective, proven truth and just ignore it and not be ashamed and not be in remorse, in regret, then there's something not healthy about that. There's something not right when the holiness of God no longer brings us to our knees. So the preacher's just pounding hard. No, 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 don't get past me. Look at God. He is awesome and He is great and He is holy and His holiness exposes our unholiness and we can run and hide and we can get mad at God and we can say, God, I'm sorry. My perspective changes in humility. My emotions are affected and I'm sorry, God. I'm reading through Ezekiel right now in my personal times with God and I was just reading just this past week in Ezekiel 39, verse 26 when Ezekiel was saying the nation will be restored and and this is what he said, that they, because of their sin, they will feel remorse for their disgrace. There needs to be a sense of healthy remorse so that Christ can set us free from that. Alright, the response, appropriately acceptable, humble, regretful, and then finally repentant. Repentant. This is a change of our actions. This is when our life changes. Our actions change. There's change, there's true, true deep change that happens when Paul is standing before King Agrippa giving an account for everything that he taught and what he called people to. In Acts chapter 26, verse 20, it says, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Prove it. Show me. The proof is in the pudding. You truly, truly going to follow Christ? You're truly, truly serious about this? When Jesus was telling this woman caught in adultery, He didn't he didn't whitewash it. He lovingly, after everybody else was gone, one-on-one with her, He looked at her in the face and said, I'm not going to condemn you either, but I am going to call you to repentance. I'm not going to throw a stone at you, but I am going to call you to change life. Life principle for you is this. Jesus doesn't expect perfection. But He expects repentance. He doesn't expect perfection. And the more established in the faith you become, you can become that idea that you are the ultimate person who says who's right and who's wrong. 
That's dangerous. That's just dangerous. You need to keep getting that log out of your eye as well as I do as well. But at the same time, we need to be a church that puts things out there and says, you know what? I'm not perfect, but I'm changing. I'm willing to change. I'm not going to be arrogant, blatant, open, and unrepentant. I'm going to be humble, regretful, and repentant. I'll tell you this, and I'm finished. God isn't looking for perfect people. Oh, excuse me. Grace Point Church is not looking for perfect people. All right? So don't get this message, oh, they're just all about perfection there. No, we're not looking for perfect. In fact, perfect people make me sick. All right? They, they make me sick because I can't live up to that. All right? <clears throat> so I, we're not looking for that. But here's another thing that I want you to understand about Grace Point. Grace Point is looking for broken and repentant people. People who realize the life, the paths, the attitudes, the perspectives that they've chosen are not perfect. But I want to follow Jesus who will accept me and love me anyway. And if there's anything that I have tried to model when I'm standing up on this stage week after week is a transparency and an authenticity. I'll stand up here and tell you when Lori and I have an argument. I'll stand up here and I'll tell you whenever I've had a bad thought and I've been angry. I mean, am I proud of that? No. I'm regretful and remorseful of it. I'm repentant of it. I'm not going to harbor it. I'm not going to play with it and nurture it. So what's happened over this past year in my life as I've dealt with various, and again, personal, professional, family, church, individual, Friendship, I mean, it's been in every sector of my life, it seems like. As I've dealt with elephants in my life and other people's lives, there's been two responses. Those that are open, blatant, and are unrepentant typically get mad at me. Typically will get mad at you too. Because you are actually pointing out a part of their life that they're nursing along and they like it. So be careful. Beware. As you venture in, you will face conflict. But there's some beautiful stories too. When I lovingly go to someone and they've come to me and they've confided in me and we're working through a situation... And we're going to tell you a story next week. It's a beautiful family in our church that had alcoholism, broken promises, and broken relationship, and how they have come back together. And we're going to have a video testimony next Sunday. Because what happens when a person is humble, regretful, and repentant is beautiful things happen. Lives are changed and lives are rearranged because they realize as they look into their imperfections into their lack of holiness. They see God's holiness. God does a beautiful work in their life. But when they hold on to it and they nurse it and they're blatant and they're open and they're unrepentant of it, it literally can take a perfectly good, beautiful relationship and tear it apart. Because really what it comes down to is when our unholiness meets God's holiness is what happens here.
with the scribes and Pharisees, judgmentalism, their unholiness, met God's holiness in Jesus. He dealt with it. They responded one way. They walked away. There was no signs of repentance. All right? Then you got this other woman coming in. When her unholiness met God's holiness, He called her to repentance, to a changed life. And you may be here today, and today God's holiness is meeting your unholiness. And you're uncomfortable in your skin right this moment. And you're mad and you think I'm judgmental. Please, I don't even know who you are. I don't know what you've done. So if God is pointing out things that are not right, let this be a time to make it right. That may mean coming and kneeling here at the front. I'll be sitting right here, coming and sitting by me and praying with I don't know what it may mean. But let this be a time when you encounter God's holiness again.